0: Hi Michaela. welcome back. Hello. So today I thought I'd fire some viewer questions at you and get your take on them. And the first one is, as an anxiously attached being, how do I create more courage to stay around my romantic partner?
1: Interesting. (laughs) Okay. There's so much in there, right? Because of course... Um, these are questions that people uh, wrote in so I can't actually ask details right and so what I have to go by is essentially uh, the phrase anxiously attached right which is kind of an interesting thing because in let's say uh, popular psychology and uh, in in, as well as in therapy there's always kind of um, trends Right like like there's this trends everywhere else there's also trends in counseling and therapy and coaching and then with that in kind of pop psychology understanding and so attachment styles is kind of one of the newer trends that uh, has happened right we. Uh, We uh, had like a whole trend around trauma suddenly everybody discovered what trauma is that's still ongoing to a certain degree, and then you know everybody now is trauma informed, and now we have attachment styles and you know before that people were really into. Are the people there around narcissists, you know, there was like a whole trend around explaining to people um, personality disorders and things of that nature, so we see these kind of trends that come and go and attachment style and using attachment style as a means of um, explaining. Uh, what's happening in a relationship is kind of the current lens that a lot of people want to see things. And so when the question is, uh, I'm anxiously attached, how can I have the courage to be more around my partner? Um, it's a, it's kind of an interesting question, because it's such a narrow lens in a certain way. And um, because I can't ask questions, I'm going to just make some, you know, uh, sweeping statements here that are, of course, not very nuanced, because we don't know what else is going on. But so um, what I'm assuming this uh, question means is that this is someone um, who essentially has issues around abandonment, as well as issues around um fully you know being with that person because of some childhood imprints that made it that um being deeply connected with someone uh, was a problem right and um th- that that's typically what people call uh, anxiously attached but there's of course a lot of nuance in there and the nuance is is the anxious attachment because the parent was volatile Or is the anxious attachment because the parent was neglectful? Or is the anxious attachment uh, because um, the, the parent was absent or abandoned that person, right? And so that all falls into the sweeping category of anxious attachment. But there's a lot of detail in there that will make the view of a romantic relationship or partnership very different depending on what kind of volatility or what kind of anxiousness was produced? Now the outcome could be somewhat the same, meaning somebody who's either on eggshells or a bit needy or a combination thereof. And why I'm saying it's a lens that's fairly narrow is that from that from that um, attachment style out, there's of course other things to consider. A wider lens is, Um, imprints from childhood around how love is given and perceived and then from there further out there's also just a bigger context of um, how was relationship modeled intimate relationship modeled was it modeled at all and um, what kind of relationship is that person looking for is it a repeat of what was received as a child Or is it the conscious countering of what was received as a child, which also kind of has a, um, you know, a let's say maladaptive quality to it in, in a certain way, because when we are so dead set on not repeating the things that were happening to us, we also get rigid in the, in the denial of other things. So it's super complicated when we look at that. Um, and I'm gonna stop here because I saw you made all kinds of notes. So um, I'll let you ask some questions.
0: Well, yeah, that's very interesting. Of course, I see, you know, speaking of trends, another trend, these you know, sorts of ideas come in and out of fashion and then back in again and uh, and like you said very often the way that the idea or trend or theory iterates in popular awareness um, sometimes it's uh it deviates a bit from the original nuance of the original theories i'm hearing you say that sort of thing so one of the ways in which these attachment styles i think are commonly used and i'm curious what you think of this and perhaps I think there's some validity in this, but also sometimes some lack of nuance here. It's almost like a personality type for relationships. Other trends like Myers-Briggs or Enneagram, right? There's times when these these come into fashion and people are like, you know, what's your Enneagram number, you know, what's your, myers, what's your Myers-Briggs myers and all that sort of thing. Um, and it's quite interesting and it can, I think, engaging in that sort of thing can be an interesting process of reflection. I'm actually curious what you think of personality profiling um, of that type, but Sometimes these attachment styles, it seems, are uh, also used like that. Oh, I'm an, an anxiously attached person. That explains why in my relationships um, I-, I feel, like you said, needy, or I feel uh, you know, ex- uh, really on eggshells or something like this. Um, that explains why that is. That's very interesting. I'm noticing a pattern here, and this attachment style describes it. And then, OK, now I'm in a relationship. I'm feeling that anxiety. I'm feeling that neediness. You know what? Maybe this is my attachment style. Maybe I can use some sort of techniques or reframing or something like that to okay put that anxious reaction to the side or uh, feel that anxious reaction. Recognize it as my pattern, not what's really going on here and move beyond it um, in some way or experiment with what happens if rather than uh, act act out the anxiety, I I act out something else. So this is often I think how it's how it's um, approached. And I'm also hearing you say that sometimes the anxiety is not your anxious attachment style, sometimes the anxiety is that there's something up, right? and that you're feeling that, and we have to be careful not to override that capacity um when working with these things. so that's very interesting. well, what do you think of uh, personality types in general typology systems and using this attachment style these attachment style theories as um in that way as a sort of personality type of relationship?
1: yeah. Well, you know, there's a lot in there in what you just said, because the thing that I wanted to say as well around these uh, styles, and I think you're right, a lot of people use it like they used to use Myers-Briggs or um, Enneagram or astrology even, right? I mean, some people are really into matching astrology and there's many other uh, tests. And so... um, You know, there is there is that person, but that person in relationship, of course, is not freestanding, meaning that person has a personality type or an attachment style or whatever personality (laughs) disorder. You know, I'm joking there, but but, you know, in the extreme case, but the partner they've chosen, of course, also let's stick with the attachment style has an attachment style. And what's, of course, what makes this sometimes very rewarding for people to work with, um, particularly people who work within a narrow lens, is that you then can go, oh, I am, um, you know, anxiously attached. And then guess whom anxiously attached people typically choose to be in relationship with? Somebody who is avoidant. Right, so it's not like the other person is like just perfect and right there, and everything's fine. And that's why it's so narrow. We we don't take other things into account when we look at attachment style. But within that narrow band, we are now going. Oh, when that person gets nervous and and then therefore needy, the avoidant um, style, you know, attachment style goes, "Ah, get away from me. And of course, as they pull away, that gets worse. And then the the spiral and the cycle of that starts. And the interesting thing, of course, is that in some schools of thinking, the whole thing with the attachment style and and treating uh, people according to attachment style in relationship therapy assumes that these things can be fixed, right? And that's in itself kind of an interesting thing can it be fixed should it be fixed, is it likely that it can be fixed right. Um, Can you really overcome your attachment style or has that attachment style infiltrated every aspect of your being in a way that it's not only caused let's say negative consequences, but also very positive aspects, Uh, you know, a certain willingness to apply oneself or a certain willingness to set a boundary and step away, or, you know, that all of that isn't really looked at when we look at, can we really change, let's say a personality type, right? And so this this is the interesting thing because in some personality types or typologies, for instance, big five, right? In the big five, which I think is a is a really, really good and my preferred um lens. If we really need to test personality, then it should be done with like very, very comprehensively, um, and beyond Myers Briggs, essentially. And so so in the big five personality models, they are essentially saying that's pretty fixed. Well, uh, um, and you can kind of work with it you can modify behavior based on the knowledge of where we where you sit but it's not actually going to change massively other than you know a bit of age a bit of experience a bit of school of hard knocks will maybe take the edges off but but a certain personality profile is essentially who you are as a personality, and then other systems talk about that you can essentially improve yourself or improve on the the imprints and the patternings and things like that. And some personality systems think you can change it. So there's a wide variety of things that can actually happen. That um, you know that that depending on where people sit and who their therapist is and what they've read looks a bit different. So um, while I think it's really good to have um, an idea of who you are as a personality, and I think sometimes taking a personality test, particularly a, a good one, can be somewhat life-affirming or, or, or you know, kind of, um, I don't know what the word would be, personality of in a way that certain things make sense and it's always nice when we make sense of some of our behaviors or we can say see our behaviors within the context of something a bit greater than us and where both um certain things we're dealing with are normalized but also where there's kind of a roadmap of where we did we come from where would we most likely go right that feels very um centering or it anchors us and Orients us in space, so there's some real positive about that, but there's also, you know, potential negatives when you identify very strongly as something, which of course can also really um, anchor down negative traits or uh, excuse negative traits. Oh, I am, um, you know, I am not able to talk with this person because I'm an introvert. Right. Um, something that I have definitely fallen prey to <laughs> on occasion right like so there's there's excuses so with all of that said if we just go with uh what this uh, question was which is um how can I be more courageous and uh you know fearless in engaging with my partner then what we would look at is how does the partner react to the um uh let's say uh outcomes of that attachment style in be in relational behavior. And then um, look at how can that person who's asking the question counteract some of their behavior to not trigger their partner's attachment style or behaviors around their attachment style. So here's a few things to consider without knowing you know much uh, of of what's actually happening. when you've identified your relational knee jerk, let's say, right? That thing you do when you feel um, the anxious, you know, attachment coming on, so to speak, can be tracked, right? It's typically patterns that stay fairly consistent over periods of time. So uh, somebody can go, and this is where it's sometimes really good to have a therapist or somebody who can track it when this happens, I do this, right, when this happens, I feel this. And then um, over time, like you were saying, maybe, you know, maybe there's some tools like relaxing or stepping away, or the partner also knowing that this is what's happening. Um, Bodily things like, you know, getting out of the room, moving the body, going against a certain kind of a freeze or a certain kind of a Anxiety coming on, uh, verbalizing things, working with the body, um, you know, verbalizing with the partner, what's actually happening. All of those are good steps that somebody can take. And the thing that I want to say to the person writing in is you want to practice these things when it's not acute. This is always true. This is the same as it is with, you know, trauma patterns, Which in a certain way, you could say the moment the anxious attachment kicks in, it is like a trauma pattern because it's based on something that happened very early on and that's been installed into the system, so to speak, very early on. So it has that, oh God, I'm not safe. I'm not, you know, I'm not loved. I'll, I'll be abandoned. I'm, you know, I'm unclear on how I should behave all of that when that kicks in, that is somewhat like a trauma trigger or trauma response. So learning how to deescalate from that uh, with the help of somebody who can really give some specific, um, you know, notes on that is super important. And then um, in the face of it and in the face of being with the partner and knowing what's happening, like you were saying, relaxation, the ability to stay with it and feel it and kind of ride that feeling versus shrinking back or locking down on that feeling is super useful.
0: Very interesting. Thank you. Uh, Do you have anything to add to that or should I fire another one at you? It's
1: fine. I mean, unless you have something to so add to that, because I know you know you know a thing or two about that, too.
0: Well, maybe you could say a little more about movement as a pattern interrupt in in this sort of, or a sense of processing or not getting so caught by emotion uh, or the anxiety response. Could you perhaps just say a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks for saying that, because I think in general, regardless of how you slice these um, relational um, entanglements, let's put it, you know, this relational um, back and forth, we can always boil it down to the body being your first port of call, regardless if you have uh, therapy experience, cognitive behavioral th- uh, experience in your, you know, in your mind or in your emotions, the thing that anybody can do at all times is coming back to the body because in the body, there is a very, very absolute, well, I should say genius ways of unraveling this that are below the cognitive, you know, the, the, the conscious cognitive function that can be very easily accessed. And so the first thing to do is always feel into the body. How do you feel into the body? Well, when you're in a stress situation, the easiest way is to feel down, wiggle your toes, tap your feet, um, move your knees if you're sitting, move your hips if you're uh, if you're sitting, you know, very slightly, so that your attention goes into the body. So that's the first thing. Or if nothing else, you know, moving the fingers, um, blinking, swallowing, all the things that make you go, oh, I do have a body. Um, my body feels under duress or under stress, let me connect with my body and let me feel what's there in the body. So that anybody can do it at any time. And that's always uh, super valuable because the moment that happens, you are going to feel where things show up and how they show up. And the body has an ability to actually deal with those kind of discomforts um, because, uh, yeah, well, it's a longer conversation why it can, but the nervous system is equipped to deal with these stressors if you actually allow the body to do what the body knows how to do best. So the regulation, the down-regulation Often can just happen when you go into your into your body awareness when you move your body. Often when that happens, people spontaneously take breath. Right? They start, um, you know, just relaxing their breath. Or often you hear the sigh kind of breath where people go, ah, you know, that two inhale exhale breath. Um, that's kind of the sign of the down regulation, the natural down regulation so that's um you know something that anybody can do or if you can't wiggle anything you can just feel where your bottom meets the chair uh to say it politely right and feel that kind of um inward downward sensation
0: so you're pointing here to movement as a a one good strategy to uh regulate the nervous system and to uh, respond to those times when a pattern uh, comes up in the body, such as trauma pattern or anxiety coming, coming from a kind of uh, a looping or a patterning like anxious attachment, for example, you're saying movement is is a way of feeling that and uh, regulating that and not letting it settle and grip you. Is it something like this? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very interesting. Perhaps I'll fire another one at you. This is from Amanda. How to stop obsessive thoughts about my new partner?
1: Well, the question is, what kind of obsessive thoughts are they? Right. So um, it would be nice to know. And of course, we can't ask Amanda right now, but I'll give a few options. Right. So new partner is kind of an interesting set of circumstances always because new partner in itself denotes a whole bunch of things that we could look into right so here's the positive aspects of that so the positive aspects of new partner is it's all fresh it's unknown it's not yet a known quantity as a relationship and so within that there's some really interesting and positive things but there's also something that i you know potentially stressful so the positive things is that when any any time there's a new partner there's a whole world of new possibility and that new possibility goes everything from um, new experiences a new kind of relationship a new way of relating to um, new exciting interesting um, sexual exploration uh, to you know, different life goals, perhaps, or uh, a new piece on um, on the relational aspect. So that can be really, really exciting and uh, exhilarating. And often, in the beginning of a relationship, it's just wonderful, right? Because there is so much of that. You you discover all these things, and uh, the relationship brings out the best in you, and you're really excited uh, about showing yourself in a certain kind of a light and and of course the erotic component is is quite good and all of that so that's that that's what new relationship means to most people but of course also what happens in new new relationship is that the new relationship like kind of a russian doll right where there's like the 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 doll within the doll within the doll within the doll um are all the old, let's call them failures of relationship um, included, meaning uh, most of us don't come to a new relationship as um, clean slates, right, we come to the relationship with the imprints of previous relationships, all the way down to childhood imprints and attachment styles and whatever, right. So when we start a new relationship, um, often there is also the: Is it going to be like the last one that didn't last? Um, are there repeat patterns? Um, do I have to be careful? Can I actually open myself to that person, or am I going to get hurt again? Um, you know, often people break up because the erotic aspect wasn't quite what they wanted to be. So then there might be a bit of insecurity around. Um, am I doing this right or um, am I looking good enough or, you know, all of those things. So when Amanda talks about obsessive thoughts, I'm assuming she means kind of negative obsessive thoughts, not the positive kind thinking about that person because it's so amazing um, kind of a thing, right? So often also in a new relationship, it's not yet determined what kind of relationship it is. And so a lot of the obsessive obsessive thoughts are around is this person going to call, are we going to see each other this weekend, um, is this just a roll in the hay or is it going somewhere, where is it going, am I ready for that, um, is that person ready for it. Uh, you know, so, so that I'm assuming that's what she means with obsessive thoughts, uh, because that's typically what causes us some distress is that we feel more invested than we think the other person is, or we're not clear on where we're standing, or we don't know if this is just a repeat from the last uh, round, um, and, you know, and all our insecurities kick in and and things of that nature. So if that's what you mean, Amanda then the the best thing to do for yourself is to see how much clarity you can get as to what is it that you're obsessing about, So for instance, if it's the, uh, is this person gonna call again, or why is this person only calling Saturday evening, 10 PM, you know, and not during the week and not, and why don't they text or call, after they've left, you know, or things like that, then um, it's really good to kind of feel what's actually happening versus what you think should be happening, and see if the obsessive loops go around the gap between what you expect and what's happening. Right. So that's the first thing to to find out if the obsessive thoughts are more around. Are you good enough or are you pretty enough or are you uh, ready enough or are you open enough that's a bit of a different kind of obsessive thoughts where you can determine what is it that you are bringing into that new relationship that could be looked at and maybe disciplined a bit. So, those are very different things and maybe your obsessive thoughts of a are of a completely different nature. If they're of the, I can stop thinking of this person, this person can not stop thinking of me we're crazy about each other, all is fine, then I wouldn't worry so much about it because that will naturally at some point, you know, wane off in the middle, in the meantime you can just enjoy that giddy butterfly feeling but if it's a negative obsession, you want to see is it around the gap between what you want and what's happening or is it within what you're bringing to the occasion and those are two different approaches. So if it's uh, around what you're bringing to the new relationship or you being not good enough or not ready enough, then definitely. I would say, talk this over with some people who you trust and see what of that is actually, let's say, true, legitimate, right? You have legitimate concerns because you had experiences before that are still bleeding into that interaction or you have legitimate concerns based on your readiness. That's something to deal with. If it's about the gap between what you'd like to and what's happening, then I would watch that very closely, because that's a sign, right? And once again, here we can say, is it the sign of um, that person actually wanting different things than you do? Or is it the sign of um, you being anxious about things that would develop naturally? That's always a fine line, right? Maybe you just want things to move a bit faster than this person can move, but they're moving in the right direction with you. Or maybe they just want something totally different than what you want. And that you have to figure out because one of the things, uh, Steve, you and I talk about this a lot when we do workshops, right? Is people love to date potential. They like, like you say, a good fixer-upper, right? Right. And uh, that's something to actually consider. Is this person a fixer-upper, right? Are you hoping that they will come around to be uh, the person that you want them to be? Or are they actually already the person you want them to be? If they're not the person you want them to be, you gotta look very careful because that's a real bad setup because um, you're essentially not liking them the way they are now. And you're also selling yourself short in the sense that you're not getting what you would like now and you're banking on future potential, which could or could not fulfill uh, itself. And in the meantime, you have obsessive thought and that person doesn't actually feel accepted for where they are. So that all said, um, that's really a, a careful consideration to have.
0: It's actually an interesting question to ask oneself in a relationship. What if this issue, whatever the issue might be, Didn't change. What if this person remained the way they were? Um, You know, is that okay, or am I only with this person uh, conditional upon them changing? Which is interesting. But there is another aspect to this. What's the difference in your view between that idea that you've just described there—the idea that actually you're in a relationship with a a possible future iteration of your partner and not who they actually are—and believing in or seeing the potential and advocating for perhaps, or being a champion of the potential of your partner? Because of course, of course, people don't stay the same and people do grow and change. And in relationships, one does see not only what the partner is, but what the partner could be. And that can be a positive thing actually in a relationship. So how do we differentiate between that belief in a partner's potential and advocating for that, and perhaps even seeing seeing possibilities that, that the person themselves does not see. And this uh, dating conditional upon a change, you know, or, or or dating a few fut- already dating that or in a relationship with that future iteration?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I think, uh, to, to say it, you know, very uh, distinctly, the question that you have to ask yourself is, if this person would never change, right, so if this person you are with, would be the way they are right now, would you want to be with them? The answer is yes, then um, any fulfilling of their potential and any fulfilling of of their kind of trajectory in life is going to be amazing and welcome, potentially right could also go the other way where they're developing in some way that you don't enjoy. But if you couldn't be with them the way they are at this particular moment, if they've never changed, then that's probably a sign to consider your options. But if you go, um, yeah, if, you know, if it's the way it is now um, and it doesn't change at all, I'm also quite happy and um, this is good and I can see what's possible, then that's a doable thing because from that place, you're actually supporting your partner from a place of abundance, meaning it's good now and it can be a lot more as we both go into this versus I'm bad now, you are bad now, we have to work really hard, go to a lot of self-development courses, and maybe one day we are okay, but who we are right now, this goes for both people, is actually not okay. That's, of course, a recipe for failure and
0: disaster. So it sounds like you're saying one of the key distinctions is, is it a basis of, of love and acceptance? Or is it a basis of rejection? Uh, in, in, in either case, there can still be a sense of, of growth and potential and, and becoming uh, better, more, whatever you know, whatever the metric is, kinder, more loving, more um, accomplished, whatever the case may be. Um, but if that's coming from a place of acceptance and love, it's different to when it's coming from a place of rejection. Yeah. Even subtle rejection.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well it always starts out as subtle rejection, but at some point the rejection gets less and less subtle, right? And the complaint gets louder and louder. And that's then, you know, Mm -hmm. then the relationship takes of
0: its own. And one way of turfing up that distinction to see what's what what's what's underneath there is to ask the question, what if they never change? Which of course is a thought experiment. People do change. It's inevitable that they will. But in asking that question, Um, that's one way using that thought experiment to to figure out what what's underneath um, this future projection. What, what, you know, what, what's the undercurrent here? What's the basis? Is it, is it love and acceptance or is it rejection or perhaps a bit of both, but that's one way of beginning to examine that. That's very interesting.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a, like you said, it is a thought experiment, uh, you know, and it is um, lack or abundance or, you know, love and acceptance or, rejection and and that's that's something to feel and i think in general even um outside of a relationship that's a nice thing to con- you know consider for yourself this brings us back to the personality types and stuff like that is to kind of become somewhat friends with who you are regardless of how much you can change because as uh, discussed right many personality models and many schools of thought in psychology around that talk about uh, certain things not changing that much so you might as well be good with that and uh, play to your strengths and play to um, the the areas of your personality and your you know general being that are good and that can be developed I read something last night um, that was uh, kind of interesting I had forgotten about that but uh, this in in this particular text there was this whole um, talk about pretty much any person you know when we talk about high performers or how somebody can develop themselves uh, properly um, any person has about 25 percent of you know of of um Well, let me say this differently. I'm not explaining this well. So in this in this paper that I read, they talked about the fact that every person has about 25 percent of their personality and their ability that is within the range where they can achieve mastery. So the, the fact is everybody has something you might not be a good athlete, but maybe Uh, you can memorize really well, or you're good with languages, or maybe you are really good with your body, but you know, uh, math isn't your great thing. So the key there, they were talking about high performance, and how do you work within your nervous system with high performance is you find those, let's say 25% of your ability that are at a level where you can go to mastery. And then you um, apply yourself in that domain so that you feel good and you have inclination to do so.
0: Uh-huh. Okay, very interesting indeed. So perhaps I'll fire one last question at you here for this episode. And this is from Ben. Um, ben is saying that he's noticed in his relationship with his partner that he has less interest in sex than she does. And he is asking you to comment on that. And he's also asking, do you notice a rise in men having less sexual interest than their female partner?
1: That's a very good question. Um, well, let's, let's start with the second question and then go to the first as they are obviously related. Yes, I would say that um, in the people I speak with, um you know in in the context of teaching workshops private sessions um, there is definitely a report of um we're now talking men with women right so Ben's question so um I have heard from quite a few men and also from the women who are with those men that they are way less sexually interested than they have been in the past and um, also within, within the relationship, they're way less interested. And cliche used to be that men always wanted sex and the women didn't and you know had to feign headaches or be busy or they were tired at the end of the day and the, the male sexual attention was actually a bother. That used to be the cliche. And so nowadays though, we do hear, first of all, um, all across the board, both in Europe and the US, Um, That's, I mean, I'm sure it's in other countries as well, but that's where I've seen writings and studies about that sexual interest and sexual activity has gone way down. In general, um, both with within people who are in relationship and new people who are looking for relationship or dating. And I think there's a, a million reasons for that a lot of them are let's say environmental or societal in the sense that you know are that we're not even done with a pandemic it's still a pandemic um, and it's been a long time and you know everything from the 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 stress the post traumatic stress of some of that um, and then also of course uh, people recovering from viral infections and everything that comes with it um, is is definitely um, a factor that one could look at when we look at the big thing. But what Ben's talking about is um, something that a lot of people have reported, which is that uh, the the engagement, the the erotic engagement, not only actual sex, but the kind of play around that isn't um, on the forefront of relationship you know, in 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 some domains and so here are some of the reasons for that potential reasons that Ben can fill in right so on the let's say more physical level. um, The demand, like the outside demand uh, has made it that a lot of people are very depleted and they actually don't want to engage sexually because it's work and uh, in the context of. Uh, a man and his wife or partner having sex, often the heavy lifting, so to speak, is placed on the man, where the man is the one uh, maybe initiating or on top, right, or making sure it's going a certain way or deciding where, how, what, right, making it interesting, making it exciting. Um, Also, you know, having to be a lot more active just physically in the way somebody moves and all of that. So a lot of guys that I've spoken with and the the women who report on it, it's just too much of a bother and not because they don't love their partner or they don't want to have sex, they just don't have a lot of energy and the energy they have, they don't necessarily want to spend in that way. So that's one thing that's definitely been happening where, people are just depleted and they're more and more depleted with um, all the different factors and um, you know uh, we've talked about this before in in other episodes but also we talk about this a lot in teacher training and things like that the whole idea of um, essentially uh, barriers to embodiment which are also barriers to erotic engagement because erotic engagement and embodiment are The same in the sense that you need to be in your body to want to engage your body sexually with another body, and so the barriers to embodiment are, of course, stress, anxiety. um, Overload and uh, trauma. And that's how we slice it in in the way we we work with it. And so all of those things have increased, right? The stress and the anxiety, the overload and overstimulation externally as well as internally and um, traumatic, traumatic, I mean, things that uh, are injurious to our being, like Uh, you know a lengthy lockdown or having lost your job or the kids having been home with you in the same room for three months all of those things um, will diminish your connection with your body and often um, the recovery and peace and quiet and not engaging take precedent over um Wanting to engage sexually, so that's one aspect of what Ben might be experiencing. The other aspect is that very often these days um, the th- things have shifted a bit because it used to be that sex was kind of also a way of. Um, you know, releasing pent-up energy in men. Men would say, oh, you know, I'll have sex and then I'll feel everything's clear and, you know, I'm relaxed and my body feels good and, um, you know, the stress has been released and it's all fine. And that is definitely true. And we see that evolutionarily speaking that um, a sexual response is can also be connected to a threat response. But that's only true if you don't have to Conserve energy right so meaning when when you're so depleted that the release costs you more than it gives you, then you're probably not going to want to go there, but in 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 Ben's partner, it might be that. the, The sexual connection is really a lot about the emotional closeness the intimacy the feeling connected the kind of also getting out of the head you know, and getting back into the body. So she might feel sex is a means of actually releasing herself from her pent-up thoughts and reconnect back in the body and reconnect back with the partner when it is a bit disconnected. And so she might feel that the sex is kind of a vehicle to the reconnection while he sees the sex as a vehicle to depletion in a certain way. So that's one way to go. And so for Ben here, one of the things that you might want to experiment with is is to perhaps up the intimacy aspect, but not the sexual aspect. But once again, and this comes to the more negative um, things that I also hear is um, a lot of men don't want to engage in that domain, because it's not only physically depleting it's also emotionally depleting when it's not right or when there's a complaint about it not being long enough deep enough full enough um, satisfying enough you know all of those kind of things so that's something to look at is there a complaint uh, that's being lodged that uh, persists through the sexual like past the sexual occasion or is it? just a real, uh, you know, positive uh, wish to reconnect and be intimate. If it's a positive wish to reconnect and be intimate, and there is a happiness and the relaxation and the connection afterward, then that's different than when you connect and you're intimate, and then the complaint persists, so to speak. So that's something to look into. And of course, now when we look at uh, Ben's Ben's partner, who we don't know, uh, would be good to look at um, is the connection or is the need for sex and need for connection and depth and intimacy and engagement, or is it supposed to um, validate an insecurity or valid because that also sometimes happens, right? Uh, Sometimes we're conditioned to think that if somebody desires us sexually, we are okay as humans right as women and as humans in extension, uh, or we need the validation to still feel okay about ourselves. So there's a lot in there that can be played with, but in the best possible scenario, Ben, um, you know, if you don't feel like having sex, see if you feel like actually having some positive intimate connection that could be as simple as um, laying together in a hug and talking with each other or looking at each other holding hands going for a walk which is may- maybe not sexy but it's intimate and um, you know undivided attention sometimes people in longer term relationships only give each other um, intimate attention or, or undivided attention when they actually have sex and other than that it's the kids and whatever is going on. So uh, that's something to consider.
0: Great, Michaela. That's very interesting indeed. Thank you very much. I think that's where we'll leave it today. I think it's worth mentioning at this point, you're talking about movement and the value of of movement and movement modalities. Uh, We've mentioned that today. Uh, We've just opened up the latest round of our nonlinear movement method teacher training. If you want to learn how to use nonlinear, I expect most people listening to this know what it is. If you don't, then they visit www.michaelabome.com to find out more about it. But uh, if you want to learn how to facilitate that for others as a standalone modality, or you want to incorporate, in, or incorporate it into your existing practice of whether it be yoga or, or therapy or uh, counseling or workshops of various kinds, whatever you're doing, you can you can learn in that training. Also, a lot of people take that training just for their own enrichment. Uh, with no intention to teach. Uh, just there's a lot you do a lot of nonlinear in that train in that training. and there's a lot of lectures and uh, processes to help you understand how that how that method works. Uh, it's proved to be very very popular over the years. Of course, it is sometimes the case. I will warn you, if you come uh, to enrich your own personal practice, you might end up teaching because it's so much fun when you start to teach you know we we talk about that. Um, you get a good immersion in nonlinear itself an understanding of the theory behind it. and also, Uh, we train you to teach uh, which which is a very interesting component and often people who come just for their own practice find that part so fun they end up teaching accidentally so watch out you know just to warn you so that's happening a little later in the year that's beginning so there'll be a link for that in the show notes and of course you can visit www.micaela to find out more about that is there anything you want to add to that michaela no i think that's good Okay, and there's lots more going on over there too, uh, workshops, events, online courses, we're opening up a lot of new things as we enter the second half of the year, the second half of 2022, so visit the site and find out more. Okay, thank you very much, Michaela. Thank you, Steve.